0: Thanks for listening to the podcast of First Alliance Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. For more information about our church or to watch a video recording of today's message, visit us online at facws.org. There are times when I rise to preach and the sermon's already been given by the worship team unintentionally and unknowingly carrying on the themes of the scriptures and enlivening them in ways that I never could. We are looking in Luke chapter one. And if you give praise for nothing else today, this is the last sermon in Luke chapter one. We've made it. Christmas has come early. I'd like to read starting in verse 67. And you can just listen or read along. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, and when it says his father, that's John the Baptist's father. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray. God, as we open your word today, we want to hear what you have to say. Lord, we thank you for this poem, the second one we've encountered in this first chapter. We thank you that... As Zechariah considered the moment of his child's birth, he in his old age had seen a prophecy fulfilled, a promise kept. And Lord... Maybe his son didn't go on to meet his expectations. Lord, certainly his life up to that point, having been childless, was not what he thought it would be. But you, Lord, were faithful even when he didn't understand. You loved him even in his confusion. And here you have blessed him even in his old age. Lord, would you show us in our lives how to trust in you even when we don't understand, even when our expectations are subverted or proven to be wrong. And Lord, would you give us the heart of Zechariah in those moments when your promises, not our expectations, but your promises are held true and fulfilled. Would you give us a heart of worship as he had? We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. We're introducing today a theme that will carry through all of the rest of the Gospel of Luke. And that is the theme of subverted expectations. Expectations are critical in our lives. They're actually one of the most important pieces of what it means to be in relationship with other people or in community or just really to exist. We have expectations from the moment that we are born. A child expects to be fed and be kept warm and be healthy and cries out in anger and anguish when their expectations are not met. Everybody has expectations. Expectations frequently arise as a considerable point of conflict in our personal relationships. We bring into our friendships and our marriages, and our parenting certain expectations, some of which are based on our own histories, some of which are based on what we've seen, some of which are coming out of Scripture, and some of which are just plain wrong. I mean, how many relationships get destroyed because you come in with an expectation that things ought to be a certain way, and then they end up being different? Marriages fall apart for this one in a big way. A man sees how his parents interact with one another and comes into a relationship thinking that he's going to behave a certain way or his wife should behave a certain way, and he pours those expectations out on her without ever saying them. He might just expect them and then get angry when those expectations aren't fulfilled. Why aren't the dishes done? Why isn't the house clean? Why aren't the children dressed in three-piece suits saluting when I walk in the door after I come off of work? Expectations filter into everything. Filter into friendships. I've seen friendships end because one person expected a level of communication that the other did not ever intend to fulfill. But they never talked about it. Well what happens in the Bible? If you were to look at the Gospel of Jesus Christ through one particular lens, and it's an important lens, one of the reasons, and it's a huge reason, that Israel, God's own chosen people who bear his very name, reject the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ, their Savior and King, One of the major reasons why they do it is because he did not fulfill their expectations. For the rest of the book of Luke, we're going to encounter this theme of subverted or unfulfilled expectations. The people of God were expecting a mighty ruler, a king, a conqueror, someone who would throw off the yoke that was resting on their shoulders the burden of Roman rule of paying taxes to a foreign government they had just been quasi-independent they had just had a series of kings Jewish kings called the Hasmonean kings who were taken over by an outside force and now the Romans ruled with an iron fist and they thought that that was totally unjust and that God would bring a king to rule forever on David's throne Why do I bring up this idea of expectations? Because if you read the prophecy of Zechariah without knowing anything more of what is to come in the Bible. Remember, put yourself in the position of these Jewish people, these faithful people who had gathered for a party. They had gathered for the naming ceremony and for the circumcision of this child, John the Baptist. Zechariah, for the first time, could speak after nine months of his wife's pregnancy where he could not utter a single word because of a moment of doubt when an angel said, your old wife is going to have a child. He couldn't talk for nine months, and now he could speak. The baby has a name. The baby's circumcised, and Zechariah shouts out a prophecy. You're in the room with him. Listen to what he has to say. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. Your mind goes immediately, if you are a Jewish person, not to Jesus on the cross because it hasn't happened yet. In fact, Jesus wasn't even born yet. It goes to the Old Testament prophecies and the promises that David's royal throne would be occupied forever by a king with power and authority who would rule with righteousness and justice. In fact, this very a formulation in verse 68 blessed be the lord the god of israel is exactly the same as what david said in first kings going all the way back to first kings when solomon is set on the throne david in his old age shouts out blessed be the lord the god of israel for there is a king on the throne forever Don't take my word for it. Go all the way back to 1 Kings. And look in verse 48. God has just anointed Solomon the king of Israel. And the king's servants, in verse 47, congratulate David and say, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours, and his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on his bed, and the king said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, and my own eyes are seeing it. That formulation, blessed be the God of Israel, would happen several more times throughout scriptures, a few times in the Psalms and elsewhere in Chronicles. And when it is repeated, it is always in reference to God fulfilling his promises to rule over Israel. So if you're a good Jew and there's this old man whose old wife had a child who's going to be a prophet named John and all of a sudden he's speaking and prophesying and the first thing he says is blessed be the God of Israel who has visited us and redeemed us and raised up a horn of salvation. Your mind goes to wow, it's going to happen. God is going to finally shuck off the rule of Rome and give us our kingdom back. We're going to have all the power and authority. We're going to reign over our region and kick off all of the foreign rulers. The temple will be fully restored. The throne will be occupied. It's an exciting time. It's like If you're a sports fan and all the good things come to happen at once, the Cubs win the World Series, you know, it's finally happening after all these years. But of course, you're a Cubs fan, so you know it won't happen again for another hundred years. Here it is to show mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his covenant he swore to Abraham to grant us, verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This promise that Zechariah gives is so lovely and beautiful. But I guarantee you, he did not live long enough to experience the bitter disappointment that his son would experience. You see, his son would carry on this prophecy and the legacy of this prophecy. He would go into the wilderness. He would cry out to God's people, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He would say, God is coming, his winnowing fork in hand, and he's going to separate out the wheat from the chaff. John understood this to be something real, tangible, nearby, close. And then when John himself is imprisoned and his head is about ready to be chopped off, he sends messengers to Jesus and says, are you actually the one or is somebody else going to do this? In other words, you're dragging your feet, Jesus. When are you going to take over? Zechariah would have been disappointed in what was to occur, all of Israel ended up being disappointed. Jesus does not fulfill the expectations of the people of Israel in the way that God had planned. You see, what happens is these expectations that Israel bears into the relationship with God end up being the ruin of their relationship with God's own son. The expectations are not unreasonable. We cannot too harshly judge Israel for having these expectations. If you go on to read the text look at, so there's two blessings in this text, the first blessing is verse 68 where Zechariah blesses God because he's going to fulfill his promises and then the second one comes in verse 76 when he blesses his son John and talks about what his ministry will be he says you will be called the prophet of the most high, you will go before the Lord, you'll prepare his way you'll give knowledge to his people of salvation and the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high the sunrise shall visit us what a strange turn of the phrase but if you turn to malachi what does it mean when the sun rises at the end of the old testament some of the last words of the old testament behold malachi 4 1 a day is coming burning like an oven the arrogant and the evildoers shall stumble They will, oh sorry, not stumble. They will be stubble. That's a lot worse than stumbling. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord. It will neither leave them root nor branch. But you who fear my name, for you, the son of righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. Some of the last words of the Old Testament, the sun will rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked. It is not unreasonable for Zechariah, driven by the Holy Spirit, to prophesy that the sunrise shall visit us. And for people to think that that meant that God would conquer. Not an unreasonable expectation. The second proof that this is not an unreasonable expectation is the very next verse. To give light to those sitting in darkness and under the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. You say, Well, where is that? Go to Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen God when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of the burden and the staff on his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, you have broken. Every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood, you are burning in the fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And his handle would write for us, And the government shall be upon shoulder. (laughs) Wonderful counselor, a mighty God. Right? You guys know it, right? We, we, know, we know that, you know, Messiah. If you don't know it, there's more than one song in the Messiah. It's actually a whole big thing. So find the records, dust off the LPs, get on Amazon Music. It's good. They expected a literal government upon the shoulder of the Savior. These are not unreasonable expectations. But here's where they got it wrong. And here's where Zechariah would have been disappointed. Here's where John himself was confused. Everybody in the life of Jesus wanted the blessings of God and his promises fulfilled, when what God knew they really needed was himself. What happens in our lives is we read the Bible and we see the things that God promises to those who love him. We see healing, we see filling, we see fruit, we see uh, uh, gifts of the spirit, we see ministry, we see the church out doing amazing things. But in the middle of all that, we become frustrated because we expect to experience those things because we believe in Jesus. The reality is we only experience those things when we hunger after Jesus. When we want God's presence in our lives every single day. The good news of Jesus was that God himself came to earth. When Jesus said, I am, and he claimed the divine title, people didn't want God. They wanted what God could give them. They didn't want the reign of God in their hearts. They wanted the reign of God on their throne. They wanted comfort and milk and honey and power and money and control. They wanted all that a good king gives, not what the heavenly king gives. And in our lives, we experience deep and abiding disappointment with God because we expect the blessings of God without desiring the presence of God first in our lives. That's huge. Equate it to a marriage. Imagine walking into the context of a marriage or really any other relationship and saying, I want food. I want uh, to be taken care of. I want a, a, a sexual relationship. I want all the things that marriage entails that are in the Bible that are promised to me as your spouse. And meanwhile, your wife or your husband is saying, Well, why don't you want me? Why do you just want the things I can give to you? That causes pain, does it not? We have to go to the root of the problem in our lives if we're going to really let this scripture speak to us. We're kind of like, I read recently about a woman who had gained a significant amount of weight, she went from a size 16 to a size 22. She went to the doctor, big belly, thinking I'm pregnant, numerous pregnancy tests. Finally, she was examined with an ultrasound, and they found a 56-pound cyst growing inside of her. You see, we think we know what our problems are because we're naming our problems, and we're trying to solve them, and we're adopting a little bit of God's power to make it happen, when we go to the Lord, He's saying, ah, No, no, this is your problem, and I alone am the solution. You need me in your life, not just what I can do for you. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, people are going to go to Jesus over and over and over again. And they're going to go with their expectations of what he can do for them. And some of those expectations are not going to be unreasonable. After all, it is the power and the goodness of God which creates healing, which gives us life, which brings together his people, which gives the ability to conquer whatever it is in our lives. And so to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, heal me. Jesus, feed me. Jesus, cast out demons in me. Jesus, ascend to your throne and rule with triumph. Not unreasonable. But all the while, Jesus is there, and they aren't with him. They just want what he can do. And when he reaches his darkest moment, they scatter and run. They leave him alone on the cross. Peter himself rejects him three times. Nobody really wants him who's left at the foot of the cross, but some of the women who loved him. His own mother sees her son die, but even she didn't get it. So let me ask you this morning, do you want Jesus? Or do you just want what Jesus can do for you? Do you hunger for the presence of God in your life Or do you just hunger for God's promises to be fulfilled because you're feeling pain? They're very different things, aren't they? Very different things. See, if you really hunger after Jesus, you hunger after him as much when things are good as when things are bad. In fact, that's one of the ways you can tell. If you want to stop and ask yourself the question, where is God in my life when everything's hunky-dory, the bank account looks good, I feel healthy and strong, I got a good job, and everything's great. If in those moments you care nothing for God, you, you uh, attend church sporadically, you don't hunger for his presence, you never read your Bible, you're, you're, you're not praying, you know, everything's fine, I don't need to be with the Lord, then it should be no wonder that you would suffer significant disappointment when you have bad things occur in your life and you're not hungering after the Lord because you're hungering after what he can give you. That's test number one. Of course, the second test is when you are in trouble. Do you take comfort and solace in the presence of God alone? Or are you disappointed when he doesn't do what you want? In other words, when you're sick, when you're suffering, when you're in sorrow, when you're, you have significant pain, when you've suffered loss, do you see Christ there with you? And is that sufficient? Or are you going to mistrust and hate God if he doesn't do what you want on your timetable? Okay, so those are your two tests to take home today. And believe me, I fail these tests a lot. Now, I'm not a pastor coming here to, to yell at you and shout at you. You know, one of my favorite things to do is to go to a fat doctor because he knows what I'm going through. <laughs> I, I'm not a, a, a perfect man, y'all. Test number one, am I hungry after the Lord when, when everything is sunny, bright, beautiful, and, and life is good? Test number two is when life is bad... Do I want God's presence or do I just want his promises? I can tell you the people that I have seen in my life who hunger after God's presence, when they encounter pain and sorrow, they bear it with so much more joy in their hearts than those who are just disappointed because they're not experiencing God's promises in the way that they want. So we end with this final question. What does it mean to hunger after God's presence. Well, Zechariah opens the door for us. He talks about his son. He says, you child will be called the prophet of the most high. You will go before the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. John's mission and his words were the same as Jesus' first sermon. Do you know what Jesus' first sermon was? In Matthew it says, And Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you want to be in God's presence, it begins by acknowledging we are insufficiently good to be in God's presence. There's nothing in us that gives us the right to stand before God and say, be with me. We're, we're, we're not good enough. I mean, this is what happens in our culture with this whole incel phenomenon. Have you heard of this thing where there are young men who get angry because they live heavily online internet lives and they are called incels. They take this name on themselves, meaning involuntarily celibate men. Okay, maybe it's because you haven't shaped your life in a way to be attractive to women that you are involuntarily celibate. Maybe, maybe it's because what you think about yourself is true. You're, I was not good enough to marry Olivia Marsh. I had to change We are not good enough to be in God's presence. We have to repent. Repentance is a word that means to change from to. To change from our sins to God's presence and his righteousness. And until we acknowledge that we are wrong, that we are broken, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, we cannot experience God's presence and therefore we'll never experience His promises fulfilled in our lives. And repentance doesn't end when we become Christians. Repentance is a way of life. And so I tell you today, in my life, this is true, I experientially, I, Pastor Ben, am telling you, I have seen this in my life time and time again. When I hunger after God and I wonder where his promises are in my life... I have to begin by repenting, and sometimes that takes real shovel work to dig down and find what it is that I am thinking or doing or believing wrong about God and about myself and what I need to lay before him and say, I'm sorry, do you forgive me? Thank you, Lord, that you forgive me because the blood of Jesus is sure and covers over these sins, and then I begin to experience the presence of God in my life. Maybe some of you grew up in a church or around church or have heard enough of Jesus to be inoculated from thinking you need to repent. But none of us ever ends the process of repenting and believing until that day when we enter into glory. It just doesn't happen. I'm going to end with a silly illustration. It's an O. Henry story. And you might have heard it before, don't spoil it. A man goes to a gypsy to get his palm read because he is alone and he's sad and he wants a wife. And the gypsy says, the first woman that you see will be your spouse. And the man runs outside. You with joy, so overly excited. And he, he goes up to the first woman. He, sees, he says, will you marry me? And she says, get away from me, you freak. I don't know you. And he goes to the next one and says, look at me. I'm supposed to marry the first woman I see. And she says, go away. I don't know who you are. Get out of here, you dummy. And he goes to the third and it goes on for a week. And he's frustrated. And he's in the mire because his expectations of the promise he was given are unfulfilled until he realizes he had an assumption about his expectations that was wrong and he runs back to the gypsy and says, will you marry me? And she says, yes. (laughs) It was the first woman they saw. We cannot bear our expectations into our relationship with God. We have to see what he says, what he wants and act accordingly if we want his presence in our lives. Will you pursue that with me together? Let's pray. God, we repent of our assumptions and expectations that we can dictate our relationship with you. And Lord, maybe in our lives we have areas we need to repent of that we do not even see. But Lord, I believe there is no end to the darkness of the human heart. And every single one of us in this room needs to take the opportunity to stop and think about where we err. Think about our wrong beliefs or our wrong actions. The words that we have spoken, either against you or against others, or even to ourselves that we know are hurtful and harmful. Lord, we lay those before you even now. And we believe We claim the promise that can never be violated. That if we confess our sins, that you, God, are faithful and just and forgive us of all our unrighteousness. Lord, whatever other promises we think you have not fulfilled in our lives, things that we're angry about or upset about, we can claim this promise with full assurance You have forgiven us. And so now, Lord, we want you in our lives. Not just what you can give us, but you, oh God, we want your presence. We want to feel you near us, experience you in our lives, follow after you with all our hearts, to run after you with a burning passion. And God, when that fire just wanes and we don't feel it, Would you again bring us to our knees in repentance of whatever it is that divides us from you? Would you have us cast off our expectations and take on your presence over and over again? Because you're worth it, and our lives with you are so much better than our lives without. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.